Well, greetings to each one of you in Christ's worthy name. Truly, he is our anchor. He is our hope in life and death. It's a blessing to be here with each one of you. We have a smaller group, have a couple families out. But it is uh, a privilege to have my niece and her brothers here with us today, my sister's children from Dixon. It's a blessing to have you here with us today. If you would, turn in your Bible to John. I want to pick up our study in the book of John. So we go to John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. Let's read God's word. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves hear Bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. I think I misread that. Let's let's read that again. Verse 30. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. The wrath of God abides on him. Well, I want to remind you of a text of Scripture here in the Gospel of John. In John 20, verse 30 and 31, I'll just read that for you. And here is John's reason for writing. John 20, I've been here in this passage, reminded you of this passage numerous times as we've studied in the book of John. But in John 20, in verse 30... It says this way, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. These things that I read in John 3, friends, are written... So that you may believe in Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. The text of Scripture here in John 3 is meant to increase your faith. Just think about that's a very simple statement. The text in John 3 is meant to increase your confidence in Jesus Christ. It is meant to to allow you to put more trust into Jesus Christ. 
Well, let's pray before we get into the text. Heavenly Father, you know all things. You know this passage of Scripture. You knew that I would be preaching from this passage of Scripture 2,000 plus years ago when you gave it. Father, you know all things, and everything is in your hand. And Father, we worship you this morning from this passage of Scripture. I pray that you would illuminate it for us as we look into this, your word, and that we might open our hearts to it, and that we might understand your will for our lives. We might glorify you each and every day. We pray these things in the worthy name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. This morning, the title of my sermon would be, Christ Must Increase. Christ must increase. And I want to divide this portion of Scripture, verses 22 through 36, into three sections to help us understand uh, the intent of this passage. I want to divide this into three sections. The first one would be the setting. Verses 22 through 24 are the setting of this occurrence. This is a somewhat narrative portion, but most of the words are by John the Baptist. Most of these are given by John the Baptist. And so we have the setting from verses 22 through verse 24. And then we have the dispute, or as the King James Bible says, the question that arose. There was a question that arose in uh, verses 25 and 26. And then we have an answer given. John's, John the Baptist's answer that was given to that question or that dispute in verses 27 through 36. And so that, has in a, that is the layout of this passage. And so let's, let's consider this. So number one is the setting. It, the, the text begins after these things. And so um, that points back to earlier in the chapter where Nicodemus and Christ had this conversation. You know, the Nicodemus came to Christ and said, you know, you are a teacher come from God. You know, by the very works that you do, we know these things. And the we that he's referring to are the leaders of the Jewish church or the, the Jewish nation, the Sanhedrin. We know these things. And so the teacher come from God had a conversation with the teacher of Israel. Remember, Nicodemus was classified as a teacher, as the teacher of Israel. Um, and so we had, uh, that was the backdrop of this. And it was primarily a discourse between them about the Spirit's work in regeneration and man's ensuing faith. We had Jesus telling Nicodemus, a man must be born again. But then as we move through that passage, it becomes clear that whoever is born again has faith in the Son of God. That there is um, the work of regeneration becomes evident in our faith in Jesus Christ. And so we, we have that as the backdrop after these things, he says. Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And you, we might think, well, earlier it makes it clear that Nicodemus, that Jesus went to Jerusalem and that it seems that there's where he met Nicodemus. And Jerusalem is in Judea. It's the capital of Judea. And... So here when he says that Jesus came into the land of Judea, the idea is that he went out into the countryside. He left the city of Jerusalem and went out into the surrounding um, rural areas. And Jesus came into Judea and th there he remained with them and baptized. <clears throat> So his, as we said, his encounter was with Nicodemus in Jerusalem, but now he 
moves out into the countryside, and this, this word and baptized, it assumes that he was preaching as well. John was preaching the word of God, in, and he baptized, and so did Christ. They, he, he preached and baptized, but notice that it says, and there he remained with them and baptized, but the next chapter, John 4, verse 2 says, Though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. Just a clarification there, that when it refers to Jesus baptizing, it seems like he gave over the actual uh, administration of the ordinance. He gave it over to his disciples. But it refers, uh, in uh, John 3.22, it speaks as if he was uh, baptizing, which in a sense he was uh, through his disciples, we could say. But now John the Baptist in verse 20, uh, 23, John the Baptist was also baptizing. And remember, this is the setting for the larger um, purpose of this text. The setting is simply that there was another ministry going on in close proximity to the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. It says, Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there. Now it doesn't say that he, the mode of baptism was immersion, but why would you need a lot of water if it were not immersion? And so we, we don't know. It does not say. But they came and were baptized. And who they were, it doesn't necessarily say. Maybe it was that verse, that word there, and they came and were baptized, might refer to not only the people who came to the baptism of John, but also to the baptism of Jesus and his disciples. It doesn't clarify that. But the setting is, I think the point here is that we had two ministries that were ongoing in close proximity to each other. We don't know where Anon near Salem was. There, there's no definitive way to place that. And so we don't really know how close the two ministries were ongoing, but we do know that they were aware of each other. I think that's the key, that the ministry of John and his disciples were aware of the ministry of Jesus and his disciples, and both were baptizing. <clears throat> Both were about the Father's business. Both were sent by God. If we drop down into um, verse um, 28, John says this, I have been sent before him. If you go over here to verse 34, for he whom God has sent, referring to Christ. I want, I want to set, make this abundantly clear that we have two ministries in this setting. Both were authentic ministries of Almighty God. They had both been sent to this work. They, had, they were both doing this, the work of God. That's the setting that we have. Now, verse 24 is just this short little nugget for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Um, a short little verse that is interesting in that it clarifies Christ's ministry in Judea as being before the imprisonment of John. If you go to Matthew in uh, chapter 4 in verse 12, it indicates that Jesus began his Galilean ministry following the imprisonment of John. In Mark, we see very similarly, in Mark 1.14, Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee following the imprisonment of John. This little verse in chapter 3, verse 24, for John had not yet been thrown into prison, indicates that there was a ministry that Christ was doing before that the synoptic gospels do not record. This, this is a little nugget that helps us to see that there was a ministry that Christ was doing that uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, do not record. 
And so we have the Gospel of John supplementing the information that comes from the other three Gospels. It's just an interesting side note as we look at the, uh, the Scripture, how that, uh, that works out. Okay, so number two, as we, as we move to... Um, so we have this question that arises. Now, in the, in the commentaries that I considered... It seems like most of the most of the um, commentary was negative toward the um, toward the disciples of John for their dispute. The Old King James doesn't necessarily what we call the Old King James. The King James doesn't necessarily. Um, it just simply says there arose a question. And I, I don't know whether it was necessarily negative, but the um, translators for this Bible would indicate that, you know, there was a dispute or there was a question. And that word simply means a searching. There was a consideration that, so, so there was a third party involved. And that, that was the Jews. And the word Jews could simply be singular as well, that there arose a dispute with a Jew about purification. And this, this could also be, um, if we remember, that when Jesus was at the wedding in Cana in Galilee, there were six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews. And that may be what's, you know, I'm not sure what that, um, you know, what this purification, it doesn't specify the disagreement. It just simply comes up that there was a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And that word purification was just simply maybe the the sign of that it was intended for, which is, the cleansing from sin. Well, whatever that difficulty was or whatever that dispute was, it, and it is difficult to really see the whole picture here, but when you see the response of John, John the Baptist, you begin to see, well, there was probably a negative, something negative going on here that there was an argument. You notice what John says first off here. When, when he answered, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. And you yourselves, you disciples of mine, you know that I have told you and have been diligent to tell you that I am not the Christ. So it, it seems like there may have been, John was, John did, John's disciples may well have been disputing with the Jews about which of these two baptismal ministries was the more important one. I believe that, that that is logical because we have two ministries that were in fairly close proximity and they were aware of each other. And when this third party came in, maybe that the question was, maybe the de- debate between the disciples of John and the Jews was that about the two, which one was better? Which was more necessary? Which was better attended? Which teacher should we follow? And so John's disciples come to John in verse 26. And they say to him, Rabbi, or Master, the one who was with you on the other side of the Jordan River, you know, that one that you testified about, you know, he, you know they were very clear that they were, you know, it's that one to whom you have testified. Now, now look what he's doing. Behold, he's baptizing it, and... and the whole countryside is just running after him. That's what it seems like. I don't know. We, we have to assume a little bit of what was going on here. But there was a dispute or there was a question. And this is, this is kind of, the, this is kind of the, um, the backdrop of the, the, the great heart and soul of this text. It seems quite clear that the encounter with the Jews had left John's men feeling threatened. Just think about that. 
Here they had been following this man, and they had become his disciples, and now there was another work going on. And it seems like John's men were feeling threatened and a little disconcerted. They seemed to have lost or even forgotten the reason why their ministry existed. Just think about that. Their ministry had become an end in of itself. Their program had become more important than its mission. They, they, had, they, they were measuring the success of their ministry by the numbers of the people that were gathered around. That's what seems to be going on here. That's what seems to be going on. John's answer to them should be the goal of every mission and ministry and work that names the name of Christ. Why? Why is the church so divided? Why are there so many divisions and squabbles and contentions in those who profess the name of Christ? It is because Christ is not first in their lives. It is because Christ is not first in their mission. It is because they have lost sight of their ministry that Christ must increase. That is why we have divisions in the Christian church, is we have lost our way. The church has, our gathering has become more important than the Christ. Our work has become preeminent. We have a goal. We have, we have our thing that we're doing here. And we're threatened when somebody is prospering over here, you see. We're threatened when somebody else is doing well over here. But John is so content to just be faithful. Notice John's ministry is fading away. It's fading away. We see very little more of John in the Gospel of John. John's ministry is disappearing, but he is content. He is content to have it so. So when these men come and says, look, there's something going on and everybody's flocking over there. Everybody's running to him. Let's go to section number 3 here in this text. Verses 27 through 36. Here, of course, is the heart and soul of this passage of Scripture. Here is the meat of this, of this text. This section is essentially a comparison between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. If you take verse 27 through the end, it is primarily a a comparison. And that is what we want to look at. John's attitude. John's understanding and attitude here is essential for anyone who is engaged in kingdom work if they wish to be successful. You know, what John says in response to his disciples when he says Christ must increase. This drills down to the very core and to the very reason for our existence. It drills down into the motive for any ministry that Christ must increase and that we are content if he does, that we are completely satisfied and rejoicing. If someone else gets the glory for an increase in Christ's work, wherever it is. If somebody is blessing and preaching the name of Jesus Christ, and it is not you, we should be rejoicing. Paul was there. He he even says that if, if someone preaches the name of Christ in contention, I rejoice. So here is the motive for every true ministry in the kingdom. So, verses 27 through 29. 
Here John describes who he is. Verse 27 through 29, John is talking about himself. Then in verses 30 through 35, John describes who Christ is. And as we move through this and as we we begin to see, well, indeed, why should John not decrease and Christ increase with the with the abundance of the exaltation of Christ in this passage. John, in verse 27, immediately humbles himself. John answers that a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. What a statement. John is simply saying, look, my work is not necessarily my own. It was given to me from heaven. It is my ministry, yes, I received it from heaven, but it is not of my own making. He says simply, I, I'm willing, I willingly submit my work and its extent, its boundary, to the one who gave it to me. Now this is, this is sometimes hard for us to submit ourselves to the work that God gave us to do when we see someone who has a larger sphere of influence. That's not for you to worry about. What did Jesus say to um, where, where um, one of the disciples said, well, to, to Jesus, well, what about this man? Jesus said, well, if he, if he remains till I return, what is that to you? You follow me. You see, we, we, get, this, we get this horizontal uh, perspective. Well, what are you doing for the kingdom? What are you doing for the kingdom? Or, you know, how does, how does my ministry me- measure up to yours? And, and, and you know, we, we begin to... We begin to glory in what we're doing. Okay. But that's not what John was doing, was it? John was glorying in Christ. He must increase. I must decrease. So John immediately humbles himself here. He points out in verse 28, as I mentioned earlier, he points out to them, the very people that come to him, he says, look, you can bear me witness that I gave due diligence to let you know that I am not the Christ. (laughs) You see that? You yourselves bear me witness, verse 28, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. I am not the one that is to be exalted here. John says, and you yourselves can tell me what I told you, you see. I am not the Christ, but was sent before him to point people to Christ. I therefore am not in competition with him, you see. And then John uses an analogy to show his relationship to Christ. He gives us a a, a word picture. Notice what he says in verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. So Christ is the bridegroom here in this analogy. The people who are coming to him are the bride. These people coming to Christ who are running to Him to hear Him and be baptized of Him, they are the bride. John says, I am merely the best man at the wedding. He says, I am just a best man who is busy with the details. I am here serving, he says. I am here in, you know, coordinating this event. I am a wedding coordinator, so to speak. This word, friend of the bridegroom, was the, was an, the ancient equivalent of the best man who organized the details and presided over 
the Judean wedding. That's a note from MacArthur. That the friend of the bridegroom was, he had certain responsibilities. Kind of like the wedding coordinator of our day. And what John is saying, that my goal is at the end of the day, that the bridegroom has his bride. I want to coordinate this event in such a way that the bridegroom has his bride. Think about it. Who should have the bride but the groom? John is so far from jealous. Notice, rather he rejoices that after much planning and preparation, in the fullness of time, the groom has arrived on the scene and John hears his voice. Here he is. Oh, he has arrived. He is here. The bride is, is, is ready and, and prepared. And the coordinator rejoices that the plans are falling into place. Notice John's posture described in verse 29. Notice here. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, who, here's his posture, who stands and hears him. That was John's posture in relation to Christ. That the two ministries were so far from competing with each other. The one was merely a forerunner and stood by and waited. He, he stood there to serve and he listened to obey. This was, this was John the Baptist's attitude to the Christ. He, he stands and hears. He, he stands to serve and listens to act. Isn't that a beautiful picture of a minister? Of a ministry? Of any ministry? That we hear from Christ and we act to, in obedience. That Christ must increase. That I must decrease. See, this posture of waiting on Christ As we do that, we glorify the groom. We glorify the bridegroom. He's in charge. You see, John's master had arrived, and John was filled with joy. He was filled with joy. Notice what uh, the Apostle John said in, in the second John in verse 4, he says, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. He doesn't say, I rejoice greatly that, your ch- that some of your children are following me. No, that they are embracing the truth, that they are walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. Go back to the third epistle of John. In, um, in verse 2, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. It's an interesting, it's an interesting way to say, I hope you're doing well. I hope your, your health is so good. Actually, I hope your health is as good as your soul is. How, how healthy would we be? if our health were equivalent to our spiritual health. Notice what he says. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy, he says, than to hear that my children walk in truth. This is the joy that John the Baptist was experiencing in our text. Therefore, this joy of mine is filled full. I'm happy if my ministry points you to Christ and instigates and motivates and 
exhorts and all of these to Christ. You see, the Apostle Paul dealt with this issue in the Corinthian church. This issue of competition in ministry. He dealt with it abundantly in the book of 1 Corinthians. I want to just give a brief overview of of what the Apostle Paul said about this idea of competition in ministry, which is what we're talking about in John 3, where the ministry of Christ and the ministry of John the Baptist were being compared, and John was giving his defense and his motive. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. If you would turn there, I'm going to flip back through the book just a bit and show you that Paul was dealing with this very same issue in the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Shlo's household, I don't I probably didn't pronounce that right, that there are contentions among you. Wow. How would you like to speak to somebody? Say, I heard it from such and such a, a family in your church that there are divisions and arguments and contentions among you. I hear that there's disputes, there are disputes going on among you. What if an apostle wrote that to Believer's Chapel? But he's exhorting them to have this mind, this same mind. Notice what he says. That there are contentions among you. Or, that word contentions, quarrels. There are quarrels. Well, what about, what were the quarrels about? Well, notice, now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? See, that's the question that we should ask each other. You know, if we cannot fellowship together, why? Is Christ divided? Did Paul die for you? Did Peter die for you? No. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, we know all those are theoretical questions. And it's, they are, no, no one was that. Notice verse 31 then. As we just, we could read 26 through 31. But that, it, that as it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Don't let him glory in Paul. Don't let him glory in Apollos or in Cephas. But let him glory in the one who died for him. Let him who glories glory in the Lord. Then you have it in 3, chapter 3, in verse 3. Just breaking in because for the sake of time. For you are still carnal, chapter 3 and verse 3. For you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men, like unsaved people? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? When you have these distinctions, and you're following these people, Christ is not increasing in your midst. Um, We have... Let me continue reading here. For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? Verse 5, who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase, you see. Then verse 21 
dropping back further into chapter 3, verse 21. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, all th- or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. And then in verse uh, chapter 4 and verse 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive, you see? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as you have not received it? So, any minister or anybody in ministry, whatever your personal ministry is, whatever my ministry is, if it becomes its own thing, and it becomes something that glorifies me, then we're acting, we're boasting in what we have received as if we had not received it. We are boasting as if we had come up with this and that it is ours and it is better than yours and you should follow this instead of simply turning people and pointing people to the Christ. John the Baptist says, He must increase, but I must decrease. Wonderful attitude. So John moves now to a focused description of Jesus Christ. But first, I want to show you something. There are three usages of the word must in John 3. Three times that the Apostle John uses the word must. And whenever you see that word must, that means that it's an imperative. That it is of highest importance. That it is of ultimate Um, importance. And so in verse 7, we have the first one of John chapter 3. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, that should be said to the sinner. Do not marvel, sinner. You must be born again. Then you come to John chapter uh, John 3, verse 14. We have the second usage of the word must. In John 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now we see that the Savior must be lifted up. If anyone would be saved... The Savior must be lifted up. He must be crucified. He must be offered. If any sinner would be come saved, he must be born again. Now we come to John chapter 3 and verse 30. And we could say this to the saint. This should be the attitude of every child of God that he must increase. This is... Now, the recipe for productivity and profitability and fruit-bearing in the Christian life is that Christ must increase. If that is not our attitude, and as, we, as Brother Chris shared in John 15, I had to think of that, that Christ prunes us so that we bear more fruit. But as we push back against the pruning shears of God, they are uncomfortable. They are difficult to bear. The pruning shears, it looks like He's lopping off wonderful, useful branches. But if we submit, we just let, make Christ increase, then His pruning shears are welcomed. Truly, may we embrace the attitude of John the Baptist that Christ must increase. 
So John the Baptist describes Jesus Christ in this last section in at least five ways. And just quickly here at the end of the sermon, I want to consider these five different things and how that John the Baptist exalts Jesus Christ in this last portion. Notice what he begins in verse 31. He comes, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. So first of all, as we consider John the Baptist comparing Christ with himself, we see that he begins immediately with where Christ came from. Christ had heavenly origins. And as he came down from heaven, John says, those of us who are of the earth, we're simply speaking of earthly things, even though, and John kind of describes himself as, as the apostle Paul did. We have this treasure in an earthen vessel, but he describes Jesus Christ as having heavenly origins and coming down from heaven. And if we flip back in the, in the book here and Jesus himself said, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That is the Son of Man who is in heaven, you see. And uh, we have it in uh, John 1 verse 51. And he said to him, he said to to, uh, Nathanael, when Nathanael confessed him, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open. Heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. You shall see heaven open in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Heaven will be opened as it never was before. Heaven will be, will be testified about by the one who comes from there. You know, you believe a word from somebody who's been there, right? I mean, we do. We, 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 we give much more credit to someone who's been somewhere and returned to give us a testimony of what was going on there. And that is the very next point. Number two, when John says, compares himself with Christ, he says in verse 32, in what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. That's what he's preaching about, disciples. What he has seen and heard, Jesus Christ is preaching that. No one receives his testimony. Christ has first-hand information. What he is preaching about, he has seen it himself. He has heard it himself. Think about it. Christ was not preaching by faith like I am. He was not preaching by faith. He had seen it with his eyes. He had had heard it with his ears. He had handled it. He was in the very bosom of the Father, verse 18 of chapter 1 says. And now he has come to earth and is declaring that to us. You see, John could not any, in any, to any degree measure up to that sort of personal experience. Christ was not preaching by faith as everyone else must. And then number, number three that John is pointing out here in this beautiful portion of Scripture. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. Verse 33. He who has received the testimony of Christ, that which he has seen and heard, has, and if you receive that, you are setting your seal, it says, that God is true. The testimony of Christ is equal to the words and truth of God. No one else can claim that. The very words of Christ were the words of God. 
And when you agreed with them, you were agreeing with Almighty God. No one can say that, that the very words that I speak, except Christ himself. Here is how God is glorified. When you believe in Christ, God has sent his Son, declaring his truth. And if you receive his testimony, you're agreeing that God is true. You see how God is glorified when you receive the testimony of the Son Truly, truly, here's a, here's a mark of, of a preacher, a teacher of much greater import than any human being could be. And then number four, found in verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. And I think it would be, we could say, does not give the Spirit by measure to Him. Christ, God the Spirit indwells the Son without measure. There is no measure of the Spirit of God. How many times, when uh, I think when Brother Chris was teaching on the gifts, it spoke about how we are to relate, how we are to minister our gift according to the measure of the gift of the Spirit or according to the measure of faith that was given to us. Here, Christ is ministering indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God without measure. See, that, that, there, there's, a, there's a very big difference there. And we have it here in comparison when John is comparing his ministry to the ministry of Christ. He says he must increase for all these reasons. And then number five. Another reason why Christ is exalted as a teacher and as a minister of the gospel over any earthly ministry. The Father loves the Son. And has given all things into his hand. You know, that word loves, that's, a, that's, that's an active word. That's a, that's a word that indicates that, that the father was loving on the son while the son was incarnate. While he was in the flesh. The father loves him in his humiliation. He loves him currently. He is actively loving on the son. And and in that love, he, he just gives everything over to the Son. All judgment is given over to the Son. Verse 35 tells us that the Son of God, this Jesus Christ, is sovereign Lord. Everything, everything that pertains to your life and godliness must be addressed and received through the Son of God. He has given everything over to the Son of God. Everything. Everything that pertains to salvation. Even providence. The rain that falls on your crops is from the hand of the Son of God. Everything is given over to Jesus Christ. He is sovereign Lord, you see. John cannot come anywhere close to that. His ministry is, is subjected to standing and serving and listening to obey this sovereign Lord that is the groom of the bride. And every minister must, in order to succeed and please God, must be laboring that the Son of God have preeminence, that He be glorified in our midst. And not just in our ministry, but I would like to ask you the question, how is this happening in your life? Is Christ increasing in your life? Is He increasing in... 
Are you more loyal to Him? Are you more committed to Him? Is he, is, are His ways, is His administration growing in your life? It's not just necessarily a church setting where we just exalt Christ from the pulpit. No, we, we, we need to ask, what is going on in your life? What is going on in my life? Am I exalting Christ? Is He daily increasing in my life? I must decrease, which that means simply that that your desires, your will are daily decreasing and His will and His agenda and His government is forever increasing in your life. Actually, Isaiah says, when in prophecy of this wonderful Savior, they said, of the increase of His government, there is no end. And here is how I think in some degree that as, as everyone who names the name of Christ submits to His Lordship, His administration is continually growing and growing and increasing. So see how by all these things, John the Baptist points out the vast difference in the two teachers sent from God. The two ministries that were going on in Enon near Salem. In the Judean countryside, there were two ministries going on. But one was sovereign Lord, the other was a forerunner, pointing people, come to the wedding, come to the wedding. Well, there's one last verse. One last verse. Verse 36. This verse is the application of this text. This verse is the application that John the Baptist makes to all that he has said. You are called now to put your faith in the Son of God. Okay? That's, that's what the call is. That's the application here. Let me read this. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Well, how is that? It's because everything is given over to the Son. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. So he who believes in the Son has currently everlasting life. Isn't this a wonderful thing? Think about it. If you are sitting here trusting in Jesus Christ, you have something implanted within you that will never go away. Currently, you have everlasting life. It doesn't just say currently that you have life. You have a degree of life that never ceases. Everlasting that's amazing. If you trust in Jesus Christ and you have everlasting, never diminishing, never going away, never ceasing to exist, you have a life and that everlasting. But should you disregard this amazing Savior and not believe on Him, you are currently sitting under the wrath of God. You are currently like John 15 where we are to abide in the vine. The branch needs to stay in the vine. You are currently abiding in the wrath of God. There is a principle over you that spells doom and that forever. You see, the, the, the contrast is just as vast as the east is from the west, as far as hell is from heaven. is the difference between those who believe and those who don't believe. Because the one has everlasting life and the other is abiding in death. You see, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Well, I must close. But may verse 36 be our application to this wonderful Savior 
this glorious Savior who is all these things, whom the Father loves and gives everything over to Him. Let us apply verse 36. Let's put our faith in this glorious Savior because if we don't, we're saying that what you said about Him, God, is not true or it's not worth listening to. And you see how much we we dishonor God when we don't hear Him. When we don't put our faith in Him, we dishonor God. Just as when we put our faith in Him, we set to our seal that God is true. Verse, verse 33. You see, that's the when you, when you agree with God, you glorify God. But when you despise what He has said, you dishonor Him. Well, may we give attention to this beautiful portion of Scripture and the last part of John 3. And uh, thank you so much for listening. I want to just close with the Scripture in Acts 20 where it says, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Well, God bless each one.